Hello and welcome to the latest Envcast episode. Envcast is a Society for the Environment podcast, bringing you environmental professionals in conversation each month. Each episode is designed to provide insight into the life of registered environmental professionals, featuring experts from across a wide range of sectors and disciplines. We explore what they do, why they do it, how they got to where they are now, and their future ambitions. Each guest has verified their environmental credentials by achieving Chartered Environmentalist, Registered Environmental Practitioner, or Registered Environmental Technician registration. To learn more about the Society for the Environment or our environmental registrations, please visit socenv.org.uk. That's S-O-C-E-N-V.org.uk. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to this month's Envcast episode. My name is Phil Underwood. I'm the Engagement Manager here at the Society for the Environment. Uh, before I introduce our special guest today, I'd like to highlight that the 2023 SOCENV Awards opens for nominations on the 2nd of February. So this is your opportunity to showcase your outstanding work in recent months. Uh, you could well be the 2023 Environmental Professional of the Year if you just head to our website to find out more information. But back to this month's Envcast. Today, I am pleased to be joined by a chartered environmentalist I met at the SOCEMV Awards and Lecture event way back in 2018. Mm -hmm. You could say that they work for the food sector, but maybe not how you might expect. Uh, and they gained their chartered environmentalist registration in 2016 with the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment, who you may well know as IEMA. Uh, I'm very pleased to be joined by Georgina Stickles. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, Georgina. Hi, Phil, and it's really great to be here today. It's good to have you. Uh, as always on Envcast, uh, to start proceedings, I'm going to hand over to our guest to give us a bit of a flavour of what you currently do for your job, if that's okay. So I'm going to hand over straight over to you. Thanks very much, Phil. I have been, for the last 12 years, working with the United Nations World Food Programme. It's a humanitarian aid agency. Uh, the largest agency in the world fighting hunger. And uh, we are engaged across around about 100 countries, feeding about 130 million people worldwide um, each year. And uh, I am the environmental, have been the environmental sustainability manager, the role I've just stepped down from. Um, but I have to say, if you'd asked 27-year-old me getting started in the environmental profession, starting my master's and dreaming of the, day, the job that I would one day hold, it, um, it has been this job. And it's been the most enormous privilege to really lead the creation and, and the embedding of, the, of an environmental management function um, in a big global organisation whose work is mostly in developing countries. Well, speaking of geography, I think we should probably mention this, but you're, where are you currently calling from? Okay, I'm home visiting my family in Australia at the moment, okay. um, but I am at the moment, uh, I'm still working for WFP, um, but I've just recently taken on a new role, which we can perhaps talk about a little bit later, yes. um, working in Nairobi in Kenya. Ah, I see, I see. But you used to work in Rome, didn't you? Yes. Crikey. It's Go. been an enormous privilege. I, okay, I've got to confess, my carbon emissions, my personal and my professional carbon emissions have not been the greatest over the last, uh, what are they, 13 years that I've been with the World Food Programme. Um, uh, but we offset, so um, uh, you know it, what we what we can't uh, what we can't eliminate. We we, we offset and mitigate and uh, and mitigate that way. Yeah. So in terms of the World Food Program, um, yeah. how do you how did you come to work for an organisation like them? Um, I had been uh, perhaps it's useful to go back a little bit further. I had an earlier career in communications. 
and uh, had reached a point where I, I, you know, I'd, I'd had this incredible opportunity to meet amazing people who were doing amazing things, and I just wanted to be a little bit closer to the action and, and realised that every communications role I'd had, I'd ended up doing a story, researching a piece um, on environmental sustainability. So it seemed a really obvious choice. I started a master's, set myself the goal of by the time I finished finish this I'd really like to be working in the field and um, was very fortunate picked up a, a kind of the ideal swing job it was a communications role with the environmental regulator in my hometown of Melbourne which is EPA Victoria um, I worked in stormwater management and then climate change and uh, then for a while worked with uh, ICLE the International Council for Local Environmental Initiatives who are based in Freiburg in Germany I was working in their Oceania office on environmental sustainability and capacity building for local government um, on, on climate and water management programs. And then I took off to the UK and spent a number of years working for Atkins, but exclusively on a contract for the Carbon Trust and ended up, um, uh, you know, did some, uh, uh, ended up working with a huge variety of, uh, of businesses and, and government departments across the UK, um, including Government Health Service and uh, Her Majesty's Prison Service, which um, led to some really interesting um, learning experiences, which we might uh, might be able to touch on. Mm. Um, yeah, from there, I um, literally, I saw in the IEMA um, jobs section um, that the World Food Programme is looking for someone to do their carbon footprint. And uh, I was uh, I was about to run out of sponsorship. It was a global financial crisis, and I knew that I needed to be looking for another role. So I put my hand up, and I was um, I was fortunate enough to be selected. So um, I led WFP's first global carbon footprint in two thousand and nine. Um, the UN had uh, had realised with with some chagrin that in two thousand and seven that we didn't know our own footprint, and we um, we really needed to take action quickly. And so it was, it was an enormous, um, privilege to be able to work with, uh, colleagues right across the, the globe and, and helping them to understand, um, that, uh, you know, the carbon footprinting doesn't have to be hard. Um, it's, it's a lot of it and carbon management, it, a lot of it's good common sense. And uh, it's, that's, I think for me, being one of the things that I've enjoyed most about my environmental career, um, is that, um, you're bringing it into, you know, pretty much every every organisation that you might work for or work with as an environmental professional, their business is doing something else. So you need to show how environmental sustainability is a good fit for their business model, their corporate values, all of those kinds of things. Um, and uh, and so it's uh, it's tremendously interesting to then start pulling together the ways in which sustainability is also it's something that makes good business sense. Mm. Um, and uh, and isn't just a nice to have. No, well, I imagine a lot of environmental professionals have those similar kind of of battles with, with businesses and organisations, and and making it right the right fit for those organisations, and making yeah. it it worthwhile in so many different ways, not just for the environment, but from a business point of view and that kind of thing. Um, so you went from a kind of a core environmental or sustainability role, and now you're more working in external relationships, right? Is that right? That's right. I've kind of it's been really interesting. Career's gone a little bit full circle, and I'm I'm back in a communications and, and fundraising role. Um, but what has been really interesting about working in Kenya 
um, there is an enormous need in, in East Africa, as in so many parts of the world, to be looking far more deeply at sustainable food systems. Right now, as we are speaking, uh, you know, East Africa is experiencing its worst drought in 40 years. And uh, in just in, in Kenya, where I'm working, there are more than 4 million people who can't feed themselves. And just to put that in context, right before the um, the COVID global pandemic, um, that figure was around 740,000 people after COVID, but before the drought. So just going back even 18 months, that was 1.4 million people. And now it's, now it's nearly 4.5 million people. So the drought has escalated really badly. And what we have seen at WFP is that when... Um, when we can support farmers, not just with food aid, but with proper food assistance mm. and the, um, the ability to really you know, to work with other agencies like the UN Environment Program or the Food and Agriculture Organization who do some amazing research um, and bring tremendous technical skills, we can leverage our deep field presence to help farmers deliver sustainable food systems and sustainable agriculture so it's been a tremendous area of learning for me over the last uh, the last year and a half or so um, but also you know really tremendous to then be able to engage donors and um, you know and government and media uh, and other stakeholders to really come on board with this shift that that Kenya and, and many other countries um, with uh, you know with underdeveloped um, or underperforming agricultural systems so in terms opportunities. Yeah, in in terms of your changing role, then did it was it more um, in terms of the World Food Program operations side before, in terms of your impact as an organisation, and now it's become more of an influencing role um, externally, I suppose. On program, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, engaging much more on our programmatic side of things. Whereas you're, you're absolutely right, the early work was looking at WFP's own carbon footprint, yeah. what happens to the waste we produce, especially in developing countries. You know, it's really, really important because there yeah. aren't, you know, there isn't a truck that comes around once or twice or three times a week to pick up your waste and cart it off to the local recycling centre. Um, and certainly we see that very much uh, firsthand in, in Kenya, where there can be some really challenging practices. Um, just in terms of waste being set fire to at the side of the road and very, very informal management. But at the same time in a country like Kenya, some fantastic opportunities um, with uh, businesses being set up for recycling um, or, or reuse of materials. Um, and you see this right across. There's this really strong ethos, I think, amongst a lot of people who are used to um Everything being reused, if it can be reused, you know, you'll, you'll see in, uh, I was working a few years ago in West Africa and Senegal. Um, and, uh, and the place where I was staying, uh, one of the, the host, one of the hosting staff said, if you've got, you know, empty soft drink bottles or empty water bottles, can I have those please? Cause my, my cousin, you know, washes them and fills them with peanuts and sells them on street corners. Um, you know, so there is this really strong reuse mentality already. In uh, in so in so many countries, and it's really interesting to see that um, see that coming out and seeing a great entrepreneurialism and, and people seeing you know business models and, and opportunities um, to uh, to make something out of waste or to um, uh, to uh, you know to leverage technology to uh, to deliver better resource efficiency and um, you know the challenge is is delivering that at scale, which I guess is the challenge for us right across the environmental. Um, you know, right across the environmental uh, sphere. Yeah, there are, we we know as professionals there are great ideas out there. The challenge is how do we get the whole world doing them? Yeah, and obviously the, the challenges across different regions um, is is 
must be range hugely. I mean, in terms of learning from those who you know, reuse things, just as simply as that in less developed countries, um, you know, in, in the developed countries, we don't do that kind of thing anymore. Um, but I, I suppose that's because we're so reliant on the infrastructure that we already have, but it, it still creates a bit of a, a waste mentality sometimes, so just use it once kind of thing. Um, so we've got to learn, there's a lot of cross learning to be done, you'd have thought. Um, and I think we've touched on this a bit already, really, but when people think about the World Food Programme, they might not automatically think about the environment, I guess. So how does the environment fit into to their work? I think you've mentioned quite a bit of already, really, but how does it link into the kind of the strategy of the World Food Programme as a whole? Well, I mean, it's a really... Uh... It's a really important question. It's actually one of the test questions that we've used with the legions of you know, interns and staff that we've we've brought on to, to the team over a period of time. Right. Um, and, uh, is you know what what's your understanding of you know what are, what are our environmental impacts going to be? Um, so when it comes to a humanitarian organisation like the World Food Program, uh, you know the biggest part of what we do is purchase food or receive donated food. And uh, and we transport it from the mostly developed countries that are contributing it to the um, the, the developing countries where it's going to be distributed. And there are a whole host of things which have also made good business sense or been really well aligned with WFP's humanitarian principles or development principles that have also had environmental co-benefits over time. So increasing the amount of, uh, of procurement from other developing countries, particularly countries within a region, um, has also helped to keep transport costs down and transport emissions down. Um, but there's also, and I mentioned waste uh, earlier, and there is a huge, um, a huge consideration around packaging waste that gets developed, uh, that gets generated when you are moving uh, up to 10,000 metric tonnes at a time of something like rice in 50 or 40 kilo bags. Um, so we're talking some really potentially quite huge uh, waste impacts, some quite significant uh, greenhouse gas emissions from the movement of people and items, and uh, you know, and, and some really interesting solutions too. Uh, the humanitarian sector across the board is, is moving towards cash contributions rather than, than in kind. And that's fundamentally more sustainable, as well as being, you know, having other benefits, such as uh, giving people more dignity and choice, um, you know, provide people with a sum of money. And, and we have the same debate about welfare systems in the UK or Australia. You know, is it, is it more dignified to give people choice about how they spend that money and, and recognise that people will, will know best what their own needs are? Do they need food? Do they need medicine? Do they need to pay for their kids' education? Wow. There's quite a yeah. range of different things to consider, obviously. Um, yeah. And so how do you how do you break down that kind of work? How, how do you start to to tackle those kind of challenges? Yeah. Look, it's it's been um, it's been an enormous an enormous privilege to to really kind of lead some of this work. And uh, but there's still so much still to do. And you know, certainly even even after a decade. Uh, you know, very, very proud of some of what we've done, but uh, but really, uh, still so much work to uh, to do. Uh, I joined WFP as a carbon footprinting specialist, and uh, and was asked to do carbon footprinting, and that led fairly quickly to great. Can you do us a reduction program? And we achieved ten percent reductions in emissions over um, over a, a five year period, which we're really proud of. 
um, until a major conflict in one of the big countries that we had a program in meant that we could no longer deliver by road and we had to do everything by airdrops and um, and just that one country. Um, the change in modality was enough to double our emissions in a year and undid all the good work we'd been doing, um, which was incredibly frustrating. Um, and uh, but but undeterred, we just said emissions would be even higher and costs would be even higher if we weren't doing this other work across the board. Um, so we started looking at um, you know a mix of where are the emissions really huge and where can things be changed really really you know, relatively quickly and easily. Um, and uh, so we identified in that first carbon uh, carbon neutral strategy five priority areas around um, around facilities, transport, uh, emissions from I was going to say emissions from waste, but I think that came later. Um, uh, we were looking at uh, lighting. We were looking at switching to renewables where it was cost effective to do so. Recognizing that you know WFP at that time spread across about a hundred countries around 1,200 premises, more than 60% of which were 100% reliant on diesel generators for power. So every kilowatt hour that you could save was saving you two or three times what it would in the UK, for example, as the cost of generating that power was so high. It was also so much dirtier, so also relatively small actions had quite big carbon benefits. Um, and that was something that was really important. We also wanted to look at, um, at corporate travel, uh, the organisation undertakes. Um, a lot of mission travel, um, as well as attending at meetings, and and then there are, um, you know, staff movements, rotations in and out of non-family or or, um, or uh, hardship duty stations. So uh, looking at looking at where you could practically and cost effectively make improvements in some of those priority areas, and then over time, um, we naturally started to get inquiries about, well, what about other other environmental benefits. I mean, this this climate stuff, we understand it's very important, but it's hard to see. But the waste outside my warehouse, I can see that every day. And uh, and so it was really tremendous to then start looking over time at how do we bring um, circular economy principles into uh, into looking at our supply chain and uh, and to really work with other UN agencies and other humanitarian players to build a bit of a critical mass for this work, a bit of an appetite for this work, um, to engage some of the donors to the international sector. And, uh, and, and WFP has contributed to, um, to collaborations with, uh, with the United States, with the EU, um, to really look at how can and should the, the, uh, the, the humanitarian sector be improving its um, improving its uh, environmental performance so that as we're saving lives today, um, we're not harming people's prospects for sustainable living going forward in uh, in some of these very vulnerable environments. Yeah, yeah. I it's struggled to how, how to comment on all that, but that's a, <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of things to cover for a start. Um, and I, I'm going to come back to uh collaboration in a second but i made a link when you were talking then about because you mentioned about um conflict zones and things like that mm -hmm. and we've talked about people might not think of the environment straight away when you talk about the world food program um and I, it just made me think of another conversation i had with a chartered environmentalist who works in the world of conflicts so the fact that conflicts are you know terrible for the environment how do you um yeah. how do you work with that to, to reduce those impacts you know you're the World Food Programme's 
main aim is to do with food, right? And distribution and making sure people aren't hungry. Um, obviously, you've got a lot more objectives than that, but um, it made me think of, of of that. So hopefully we can link to that conversation as well within the description below in yeah. some way. Um, but back to collaboration, you mentioned that, that it's, it sounds like it must be key to success to what you do. Absolutely. So how many, Absolutely. what kind of organisations do you work with apart from other UN organisations? Yeah, look, just just getting that initial toehold in in the UN system, you know, there's been a fantastic, a couple of fantastic, really fantastic networks um, uh, across the UN. You know, we all started as sort of sole consultants in these potentially quite large organisations. And if we hadn't all linked up and worked together, um, you know, we would never have been able to to have the kind of the the kind of impact that we that we had. And it's been one of the most tremendous collaborations I've ever been part of. Um, people, you know, getting in touch, reaching out and saying, I saw that you had, um, you know, you had a vacancy recently. Can you share the terms of reference? Or was there anyone who you didn't hire, but you would, you know, you would really, you know, you would have if you'd had more positions. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking for someone. So some really, um, very open, um, and genuine, you know, so can you share with me the specification you did for your sustainable procurement of, um, non ozone depleting air conditioners in Armenia? You know, just some really good fun stuff. Um, and opportunities <laughs> to take one person's good idea and say, well, okay, which other agencies could benefit from this? Um, yeah. And and then, you know, which other humanitarian organisations outside the UN? So, you know, through, um, uh, you know, through working with some of the NGO agencies and certainly some of the leaders in this field would include the, the likes of Mercy Corps and the Red Cross and World Vision, Oxfam, um, have all been engaged in uh, improving their environmental sustainability performance in the humanitarian space. As I said, recognising that there is absolutely no point saving lives today if we're compromising people's ability to live more sustainably tomorrow. That makes a lot of sense, huge amount of yeah. sense. Um, if I can just pick up on your question about conflict too, one of the other key sure. players in that, and when we started this whole carbon neutral, um, climate neutral exercise for the UN the single biggest agency was and is um, the UN peacekeepers. And, and they have really led the way in making sure that every single one of their environmental missions is staffed by environmental engineers who are responsible for, you know, really the equivalent of, of a small town worth of people in some of those bases who need power, who produce waste, who emit sewage, um, and in countries that don't have infrastructure to deal with it. So they've needed to bring the infrastructure in yeah. to make sure that, um, you know, and there have been challenges in um, in uh, in international response uh, um, context where we've gone in to achieve something very positive, but there have been some unintended um, uh, consequences. And there are a number of reports um, that if you're putting links into something later, we can, we can certainly make sure that that they become available. Um, there have been some tr tremendous reports looking at some of the unintended consequences um, of uh, of, uh, of humanitarian or development interventions. Yeah, it's it's something that I think becomes so important, and certainly for for people who are early in their environmental career, there are, there's always something more that you haven't thought about, and. And uh, and learning to expect the unexpected in the environmental space is really really important. Yeah, 
and you can't solve everything straight away. I mean, like, like you said mm-hmm. about the, the the huge amounts of different things that you have to think about when you, when it comes to um, reducing carbon emissions and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's 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 not one fix. There is no. uh, there's so many different things to think about. Um, and I guess if you're listening to this as a budding environmental professional, um, there are challenges involved, right? It's just it's, yeah. there isn't just one fix. Otherwise, you, you'd come in click the switch to make that work and your job will be done. But um, there's a lot of different things to think about. There's the transition towards you know, net zero. Again, it's very difficult to do just by clicking your fingers. Yeah. There's so many different things to think about. So speaking of challenges, we've probably mentioned a few already, but yeah. what kind of, what, is there any particular challenges you wanted to mention that you faced during your, in your role? Um, gosh, where do you start? Um <laughs> That probably tells a tale. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I remember from the very first footprinting exercise that we ran um, was you know, we knew that we were working with people who were not environmental specialists, but I needed to collect the data um, in order to to calculate carbon footprints. So we'd worked out the areas that we would be focusing on. Um, it was really obvious for WFP that it would be generator fuel and to a lesser extent um, other building energy use. Um, we would be looking at at fueling vehicles, land vehicles. We'd be looking at air travel. Um, and we recognised that there were probably other areas like emissions from waste or, or sewage, um, but but that they would come later. So we were really focusing on those three areas up front. And so then it was how do I break this down to people who, first of all, for most of them, their first language won't be English. And, and how do we break this down so that um, and how do we work out who to reach out to within the organisation? Um, so the first thing we needed to do was make sure the organisation had, you know, a really great, um, a really great advocate at the top who could uh, encourage all of these country operations to to participate. And we had more than ninety percent response rate um, in uh, in our very first year, which um, which was tremendous. You know, uh, people from uh, from you know um, Kabul to Kathmandu uh, to Khartoum to, um, I want to say Zanzibar, but I don't think so, um, but certainly to Zimbabwe and um, and beyond and just really, you know, tremendous, uh, you know, tremendous enthusiasm from, from people. And, and what we realised over time is that a lot of the people who work for our organisation are nationals of that country. So we are talking about the environment in the places where they live and they know the problems and they are very, very enthusiastic when we say, here are some tools that we can use to make a difference. Um, and if you can make that as easy as possible for people, then there can be, you know, you can generate enormous goodwill and, and some, some really tre- tremendous responses. But the first thing you have to do, of course, is, is get the data. And, uh, and so needing to explain to, to people, you know, f- well, first of all, getting, you know, getting the sort of the, uh, the imprimatur, the, the, um, the, the, the mandate from within the organization. And we were very, very fortunate. Our, um, deputy head of the organisation and said, well, my title is chief operating officer, so I can be your Mr. CO2 or your Mr. Anti-CO2, really, because that's what it's all about. And so we had this very charismatic guy who had said, yes, I will make sure that I, you know, if you if you have any uh, country operations that are saying they're too busy for this um, or that this isn't really important because we're busy saving lives, you let them know that I'll be in touch. Um, so it was just we had that we had that fantastic executive sponsorship from the top level and and the goal uh, you know all of the best programs that I've worked on um, previously had that so we knew that it was something that was really important to include you know the carbon trust um, 
when they were doing their carbon management program with sort of private sector and, and large companies, um, having someone to do the, the ground level work was important, but so was having an executive sponsor. The same thing with ICLEI's uh, Cities for Climate Protection program. So, you know, we knew that it was a model that worked and we knew that it would be important to do for WFP. But then the other thing was how do you break it down and, and then how do you make sense of the data? that comes in. So we had some very, very high figures for diesel consumption, for example, from one country that when I ran it past my boss, she said, no, 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 that operation's just not that big. That Those numbers look wrong. So so there was a lot of, okay, send me the document that this came from, because even if it's not in English, perhaps I can work it out as long as it's in the right script. And uh, so it turned out that what they were sending us was the amount of money they'd spent in, in a currency called Central African francs, which is about 500 to the pound. Right. So it wasn't litres of diesel. It was, you know, and it was orders of magnitude bigger than what we we're looking for. So, you know, learning how to um, ask the questions so that you got the information that you needed. Send me your litres of diesel. If you don't have your litres liters of diesel, send me how much you're spending. But for goodness sake, tell me which one it is. <laughs> <laughs> so communication is key. Absolutely, absolutely. And we see that, you know, through all of the work that goes through Chartered, Chartered Environmentalist um, and some of the other accreditations, related accreditations, that communication work, that advocacy work, it's essential. We need to be good technical specialists, excellent technical specialists, but if we cannot communicate to, um, you know, to both our senior managers and to yeah. the people who hold the information that we need to base our good quality decisions on, then we're really stuck and we'll we'll be challenged to make progress um, over an extended period of time. One of the key competencies of being a chartered environmentalist, communication. Mm -hmm. Good, good. I like to be able to put those kind of things in there sometimes. Um, thinking of challenges more broadly, um, yeah. what's, the, what's the biggest challenge that your area of work needs to overcome in relation to environmental protection? Or, well, if I put it more positively, what, what, um, what are the biggest opportunities in your yeah. area of work? Um, as I said, the, you know, one of, one of the greatest things is, is working with people who, uh, who can see the challenges. They don't know the solutions. You start working with them on solutions. And certainly the way we always have gone into country operations has been to say, you guys know the problems, you know the situations. We've got a toolbox. We're going to work together to figure out which tools are going to help with your, your situation. And uh, yeah, so one of the projects of which I was most proud was when we put in what was at the time, we believe, the largest solar-powered system um, into Kathmandu in Nepal. Um, there had been a problem with uh, with uh, rising. No, I'm going to go back a step. Uh, Nepal, Kathmandu had for a long time had hydropower, which was very, very low carbon. But there had been a problem with the city growing much faster um, than the state's ability to create new power sources. So there was a massive increase in diesel generator use and it was affecting the air quality, contributing to bad air quality. It was significantly causing, uh, increasing the cost of power, um, including to, to our operation, to our offices. And it was just tremendous to, to get some outreach from some of the team there who said, we don't know what to do. Um, but we'd like to, we'd like to do something about it. And our country directors just come up with, um, you know, a chunk of money for solar panels. And we sort of tell you what, don't spend all that money on solar panels. Have you heard of a thing called energy efficiency? <laughs> and. 
And so we were able to spend a, a tiny fraction of the money and reduce the power bill by a third before we went out to size our solar panel system. Wow. Um, but what we put in at the time was still a 20 kilowatt system and it was the biggest one in Nepal at the time. So interesting to then go back and do follow-ups and see how it was going um, to then have the head of IT who was charged with looking after this. And she would say, and it's tremendous that we have a woman head of IT in a country like Nepal, by the way, um, but she would say, you can tell everyone I am the biggest convert. I thought the country director was crazy when he said he wanted to put in this technology that nobody in Nepal knows how to use. She said, but it's easier to maintain. It's more reliable. It doesn't blow up the servers. It's it, 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 it's so many good things. Um, so, you know, we'd found that sweet spot in terms of people with a willingness to address an existing problem and, and able to recognise a bunch of benefits beyond the environmental benefit that people may or may not be able to directly see. Yeah. And that's an example of how your work goes mm -hmm. beyond food, I guess, as well. Because that wasn't necessarily to do with food, particularly, it was to do with the uh, energy efficiency of of the area. Is that right? Well, and power security, and, and you know, yeah. electrical supply security hmm. um, for our own operation. Yeah, yeah, interesting, interesting. So many different facets to the work. It's good. Um, so, what is your favourite part of your job? Favourite part of the job, absolutely, the people that we work with in country offices, and some of the most tremendous dedication. We were one of one of the years that we were again in the early days of carbon footprinting. There had been a terrorist attack on one of our offices, and very sadly, five of our staff had been killed. And so we, you know, when we reached out, and at, at the administration staff, you know, the people who you know were paying the bills and buying the, the fuel for the the vehicles, and and so we'd sort of written to the head of admin and said, "Look, you guys obviously aren't going to be um, expected to submit a carbon footprint this year." Um, and they said, no, 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 people here want to really do something positive. So, but can we have an extra three weeks? And it took my breath away. It really took my breath away. These people who were dealing with uh, grief and loss of colleagues on a scale that you, you can barely imagine. No, we want to get on with doing something positive going forward. So tell us again what we need to do and can we have a bit more time, please? Um, because doing something environmental is going to really help us all feel like we're getting on with the job. Um, so absolutely, bar none, the, the best days are the days where we're out in the field working with colleagues, seeing the opportunities and seeing those those light bulbs go on like the colleague in Nepal, like the um, the team in, uh, in Senegal who's, as part of their programmatic work, have been uh, working to help install biodigesters to um, to both provide a uh, to, to provide a supply of, of cooking gas for the community but also to take wastes that otherwise would break down and form methane and uh you know so so a carbon benefit as well as an energy security benefit again um for these communities and enabling them to have uh have better access to uh both fertilizer which is one of the off um the byproducts and uh and an income from uh, from using the cooking gas to then make food that the women could sell so income streams for, for women and for men and so it's it's been really tremendously interesting, I think, over the last few years to see the way Society for the Environment and and some of the other agencies um, enabling professional bodies have embraced environmental and social sustainability together. And certainly, it's something we're seeing a lot more of. Um, you know that this recognition that it doesn't have to be either or. It's, it's like the old, um, you know, the old chestnut. Oh, but doing environment's going to be expensive. 
It doesn't have to be. And I used to get up in front of country directors and say, if we have an environmental solution that won't pay for itself over the life of the project or the asset, we probably haven't found the most sustainable option yet and we should keep looking. And uh, so this recognition that that um, that it doesn't have to be either or. It, you don't have to spend a lot of money to improve the environment, although some solutions do need an investment of time and knowledge and sometimes and, and often cash, um, at least up front. But that also you don't have to say, well, it's about labour rights or the environment, because we can be looking for options that that you know that the real intellectual pleasure that comes out of this this work, I think, is finding those sweet spot initiatives that save people time and the organization money and they're better for the planet. Um, and when we as professionals can really harness that, I think we um, you know, we're really optimizing the potential for impact from our profession. Absolutely. Um, and I'm going to ask this question. And I think I, I think I know the answer to this now. Um, do you feel like you make a difference in your role? Yes, I think I think our team and some of the people that I've been privileged to work with have absolutely been able to punch above their weight. Um, but gosh, there's still so much left to do. Yeah, but the dedicate, as you mentioned in the previous answer, you you, uh, you when you're working with people who are so dedicated, it must. Um, the impacts must continue to roll out beyond them and and that, that must be pretty positive to go to work to every day. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that said, every organisation and every professional listening to this will know, every organisation has somebody in it who thinks that the organisation, that the environment is something that's nice to have and it's not really... Um, you know, it's not really necessary or, you know, or that it is expensive and, and they're still trotting out some of those old myths. And uh, and certainly we've had our fair share of, of people who we've need to work needed to work really hard to convince. Um, you know, we we weren't all just a bunch of idealistic tree huggers. And and what I will say is that it's it's where having something like chartered status um, to uh, to fall back, you know, to to make reference to, has been really really helpful uh, because. Um, uh, because it's very clear that we are talking about scientific method. We are talking about, you know, making decisions based on really good data and, and having an approach um, that, uh, that uh, and having uh, a knowledge base and, and, and means for assessment and, and, and consistent values that, um, that really do need to, to stand up and uh, in the same way as people respect a chartered accountant, a chartered engineer, to be able to say, no, we're, we're chartered environmentalists um, has been tremendously important. Well, from the Society for the Environment, that is very nice to hear. So it's, it's good to know. It's good to know. Um, but let's step back a couple of years. When did you first develop an awareness of the environment and the possibilities that uh, change could be made? Oh, a long time ago. I was very, very lucky. I grew up in the outskirts of Melbourne in Australia and uh, in an area that was was a designated what was called a green wedge. Um, so it was an area where um, development of uh, forested hills needed to be managed very, very carefully uh, because of the outstanding um, conservation value of that um, of that landscape. So I was involved from the age of about 16 in a campaign to protect from unfettered development a uh, a uh, um, an area that included the uh, the nest of a nesting pair of wedge-tailed eagles, um, and it was a tremendous opportunity to um, you know to sort of go along and support 
um, the work of people who'd been doing this, you know, far, far longer than I'd even been alive and who just, you know, it was an amazing thing, an opportunity to learn from people and uh, and to see how you go about, um, you know, not putting a stop to all development but negotiating a development, you know, between the, uh, you know, the state government, the development sector, um, you know, the property development sector, um, and the local council authority um, and the local conservationists, and, and looking at how how a solution can be uh, can be arrived at that you know protects the nest means that the developers don't lose money, um, and uh, and and you know having then government engaged in recognizing the importance of of taking these steps and making sure that protection happened. Um, so I was about fifteen or sixteen when I started being becoming involved as an activist, and it kind of grew from there. You became a chartered environmentalist in 2016. Yes. Um, for a few years, and you'd had a few years under your belt in terms of uh, working in the environmental sector at that point. What does being a chartered environmentalist mean to you now? Look, it's it's been it was tremendously important in the work that we were doing for at WFP for two reasons. First of all, um, as I said, having that um, having that. Um, Glo- you know, national and international recognition um, that 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 uh, that the advice that I was giving or that our team was giving the organisation was based on sound methods and methodologies and and, and internationally recognised um, uh, processes was really really helpful in addressing some of the um, some of the misgivings or or hesitancy that senior management might have had. Uh, the other thing is that you know I was I was relatively young I was thirty five and I was when I joined WFP and I was the most senior environmental person in the organisation. I really really needed that network and and long before I even secured my chartered status, being involved with IEMA um, as a as an associate member, having access to that information, starting to build that network, making sure that I was keeping my own skills up to date and and being able to advocate. You know, sharing research and, and 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 knowledge with with my own team, with colleagues at other UN agencies, um, it was absolutely essential um, because I didn't have a mentor at work who I could necessarily um, necessarily go on with. Um, one thing I will say, I sweated long and hard over my IEMA accreditation. And one thing that I would say to people who might be looking at you know is, am, am I really ready for this? Um, I think I, I worked on it on and off for about three years. Just get on with it and get it done. Um, <laughs> just get on with it and get it done because the rewards once once it's in and and you've got that um, you know you've got that uh, that sign off. It's it's the best feeling, and um, and it's absolutely invaluable. And so you know back yourself and yeah. uh, and go ahead complete the process. There's the uh, there's the call to action right there. Thank you very much for that. Yeah. Um, I really like what you said about the mentor situation. You know, you work for an organisation that isn't necessarily um, purely environmentally focused. See what I mean? But you, there is certainly, you know, within every other organisation, there's environmental work to be done. Um, but where do you find your mentor? You know, yeah. And, and you know, b- being involved with someone, someone like IEMA or um, whoever it might be, one of a membership body. Uh, there'll yeah. be mentoring schemes. There'll be um, just networking opportunities to be able to talk to people about your skills, and and you'll get an idea of where your skill levels are at. I suppose absolutely. Well. It's not just uh, absolutely. It's a case of learning from them as well. But you know, you can kind of match yourself against these people who have got you know, maybe they're trusted environmentalists already. Well. You, you, that must fill you with a bit of confidence, I suppose. 
Yeah. Um, so One thing that I would say, because uh, I had a tremendous mentor, I was hired by someone who was an environmental engineer. Um, so I joined the organisation through, and and when she moved on, that was where I really felt um, that you know this this is becoming really important. I need to crack on and get this you know get this piece of paper, get this recognition, and I really need to start immersing a little bit more in um, you know engaging a bit more in you know some of the events and the the the, the um, you know, I need that that drive for the continuous professional development mm. because uh, because I because people are looking to our team now. Um, to be authoritative on some of this stuff. And we need to be sure that we're basing that advice on the latest knowledge and thinking and research. Yeah. And does the fact that you or some of your team have charged ship, does that help towards the um the, the trust that you can you can give? Yeah, you, you have this and the credibility. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely it enhanced our credibility. Good. Good. Um so have you got any other pointers for a budding chartered environmentalist before I move on? Um, absolutely. So, yeah, first of all, just get engaged, get engaged early. Um, looking at uh, looking at your, your career and your career progression, get as wide a range of experiences as you can early on. Build the breadth of that toolbox, um, you know, the... Uh, that understand the cultural drivers that help organisations change, understand the technical drivers that individual industries might be facing or the business models that they might be working to. Build all that up as broadly as you can, um, whether that's through consulting, whether that's through working for, say, a national program or a, a statewide program where you've got lots and lots of different entities participating. Um, but, you know, get that broad experience early uh, because you'll be able to then apply that and, and, you know, even if you have to go back to first principles, like the fact that you're operating in a country where there's no waste legislation and no landfills anyway, um, and, uh, and you're able to then bring, bring that, that knowledge that you've built um, to the problem solving that is the, the, you know, it's the everyday bread and butter, but it's also the most rewarding part of, uh, of a career in the environmental profession. Good foundation is a good idea. Yeah. Um, so let's look to the future. What mm -hmm. this is quite broad, but what's next for you? Um, we're in the process at the moment in uh, in my organisation of putting together a strategic plan for the next five years for our work in Kenya, and it's just been tremendous to see that work on food systems really, um, you know, really uh, really gain traction with uh, you know within Kenya and uh, and right across the. Um, you know, right across the agricultural development sector. You know, I, we had a food system summit a couple of years ago, and uh, there's there's this growing recognition that uh, just producing more food is is not enough. We need to produce food in in harmony with nature because otherwise we're going to compromise our ability to keep producing food. And that obviously relates to a whole host of areas, whether that's, um, you know, making sure that we're maintaining bee populations, whether it's helping uh, farmers in arid areas with, uh, with switching to different crops that might be less water intensive um, in areas that can expect to receive less rainfall. Uh, it's it, it's opened up for me a whole area of uh, and, you know, a whole new area of environmental um, interest and expertise because I'm not a soil, you know, I'm not an ecologist, I'm not a soil expert. Um, I'm not an agronomist, and uh, so it's it's super exciting because uh, I'm I'm learning that there's still so much more for me to learn um, 
in uh, in this space, and it's uh, it's tremendous. Then being you know really on the coal face, um, I'm 18 months into a two year um, oh, sorry a four year deployment, and uh, you know so there's there's a lot of learning still to come, and it's uh, it's pretty exciting. Which links back very nicely to your answer to do you make a difference? You'd want to make more difference, and uh, absolutely still lot, still lots to learn, still lots to do. That's good. Yeah. Um, now a question we ask every one of our guests on Envcast. Um, if you were able to influence world leaders for a day, what would be the first thing you would do? Seriously, just convince them that there are it's not a zero sum game. Anything, anything that you want to address, do it in a way that also addresses other problems. Yeah. Everything's linked. Everything's linked. It doesn't have to be the environment or the economy or the good of the people. Find the solutions that strive to deliver all of those things because they are they are out there. They do exist. Yeah. And sometimes they can ask the expert, can't they? Yes. Good. Good. Um, so thank you very much for joining us today, Georgine. It's been very, very it's nice. Been a pleasure. You. It's been Like you said, it's, like, it's been a while. It's been a while since we last spoke. <laughs> Um, if you wanted to follow uh, in Georgina's footsteps by becoming a chartered environmentalist and showcasing your environmental expertise, um, if you check out the IEMA website, that's the route that Georgina went down, uh, go to IEMA.net. That's I-E-M-A.net. Uh, next month, we hope to hear the insights from a chartered environmentalist working in water catchment management. So I will see you then. And once again, a huge thank you to Georgina. Thanks very much, Phil. Great to speak with you again. Thank you for listening to today's EnvCast episode. If you'd like to hear more about the Chartered Environmentalist, Registered Environmental Practitioner or Registered Environmental Technician registrations, please look at our resources available at socenv.org.uk. Alternatively, visit our YouTube channel where you can find a variety of environmental webinar series uh, registration guides and various insights from registrants themselves. Just search for Society for the Environment on YouTube. To keep up to date with what's going on at the Society for the Environment, you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram via at SOCEMV underscore HQ and via LinkedIn by searching for Society for the Environment with SOCEMV in the brackets. We will release a new Emphocast episode on the first Wednesday of each month. So if you're interested in future podcasts, please do subscribe. You can subscribe and review through a variety of platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify and CastBox. 